I'm very grateful to be here, and uh, I couldn't, I cannot resist to react with this applause with an old observation of mine. You know, maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry. You know that if you watch old documentaries on Stalin, Hitler, and so on, you may have noticed one big difference. Uh, when Hitler or another fascist leader is applauded, he just stands up and recognizes himself as the addressee. When Stalin or a communist leader is applauded, he stands up and joins the applause. <laughs> I think this is, in the shortest way, the difference. Because the position is between Stalinism and Nazism. Because the position is different. In Nazism you have Führer, Master, Herrschaft. In Stalinism you have the same, but it's a different forum. The position of Stalin is, I'm like you, I'm just a servant of the people. When you applaud me, you really applaud the cause which I serve, so I can join the applause. And I always have a problem when people applaud me, what to do? <laughs> well, I applaud also. Sorry, I join, I am on that side, and I'm so sad we don't have time to go into it, because especially today, when this new right, European, wants to blur the difference between fascism and communism, if anything, to avoid a misunderstanding in any way, uh, Stalinist communism, but I definitely don't agree with that logic which then follows that <coughs> fascism was really a reaction to, communi to communism, so communism is guilty. But I think it's very interesting to note the difference. I think the tragedy of communism is that it was the high point of what Frankfurter Schule, Adorno, Horkamer, and so on called dialectic der Aufklärung. Uh, it was meant as a radical movement of Aufklärung, liberation, and it turned into a nightmare. And here you can see all the paradoxes, just to give you a simple example. Do you know that every year on Stalin's birthday in Gulag, all prisoners were uh, gathered together and they had to sign a telegram to Stalin, wishing him all the best, and so on and so on. Now, of course, I'm not an idiot, this was all staged. But why this ritual? Note the difference. In Nazi Germany, such a ritual would be totally meaningless. You know, to gather Jews in Auschwitz to sign a telegram to Hitler, and so on. Or even the most horrible aspect of one-off, of Stalinism, the show trials. Why these trials, which are structured in a very strange way, namely, the victim is, they use all these dirty words, Schimpfworte, no? Bukharin and so on, they are a scum, a piece of shit, insects and so on, but at the same time, they are treated as universal subjects who have access to historical reason from where they can see their role. For example, it's tragic to read, of course, it was all scripted. How? I know the meanings of the process in Prague against Rudolf Shansky, a leader. He's asked, how did you become the enemy of the people? And he answers, 
Well, already when I was a small kid, my parents taught me to hate the working class and so on. But the madness is as if from outside he can tell the truth about himself. Of course, it's all fake. But the position is interesting. If you compare this with uh, Nazism, it simply is not part of the Nazi universe to organize a big trial where Jews would confess that there is a Jewish plot against Germany. And here, although maybe at the level of suffering, massive suffering, total paranoia, Stalinism was worse, I think that, I mean, it's a horrible choice. I don't want to do it, but I would say just for a tiny, tiny little bit, I would prefer <laughs> because beneath the mask of these horrible show trials, in a totally perverted way, you at least, I repeat it, it was a comedy, tragic comedy, totally perverted way, you were still treated as a free subject. There was a trial, you were guilty, found guilty. You don't need this in Nazism. If you are a Jew, I don't have to prove anything. I only have to prove that you are a Jew. And you know, this extreme objectivierung, how should I put it, is specific, is specific of Nazism and so on. I would love to talk about these things. You know why? Because they concern, don't laugh at me, please. <laughs> I it always intrigued me why most of the good feelings about concentration camps are comments. And I think there is a deep necessity in it. Don't be afraid. I am not a crazy guy who will now make fun of Auschwitz. But I am trying to send to you a very simple point. When things are really terrifying, you cannot anymore do the tragedy. Because in a tragedy, a minimal, how should I call it, decency of the victim is still operative. Tragedy is you condemn me, I stand up, kill me, but I will not surrender, all this. You cannot play these games in Auschwitz. Which is why when I reread recently the great book on Auschwitz, Primo Levi, if this is a man, the question homo, I was struck to what extent many things there are in a way comical. You know when Levy describes the process of selection, like once a two-month naked prisoners had just to run in front of, a, of an SS uh, doctor and he just looks at you for a split second and puts you into one of the two columns, gas chamber or you still survive. This ritual is comical, you know, prisoners exchange tips how to appear more healthy, you pinch your lips and so on. But you see my point, it's not a comedy where you laugh. It's a comedy where things are so horrible that you feel that tragedy is a fake. That's also my problem with, uh, hope you all saw the film, but I'm opposed to it. The best known uh, Auschwitz comedy, La Vita e Bella, Life is Beautiful. It's, the ending is too pathetic. Let me, let's make a mental experiment. I am obsessed by an idea of how to make La Vita e Bella a truly dark film. You know how? 
You know the story, I will not repeat it. Father and son in Auschwitz, in order to make Auschwitz for the son more bearable, father invents a story. That is just a big competition, we can leave at any moment we want, but, it, uh, but uh, if we stay here we will get a big prize at the end, whatever. Wouldn't it be a much darker film if, in the very last scene, when they are taking the father, Germans, just before collapse, to be shot, they would have exchanged glances, father and son, and son would have made it clear, somehow, to the father that he never believed his story, that he just pretended to believe this, that he knew what was the real situation. But in the same way that father told the story to the son, son pretended to believe the story because he knew that in this way his father would be much calmer because the idea of the father is to protect the son from the horror. That would have been a truly bad ending. Why am I mentioning this? Because today people say ideology, ideology is over. We live in post-ideological era and so on and so on. Nobody believes in it. But here my psychoanalytic education comes in. Uh, I mean theoretical. I mean, uh, when people ask me why am I not an analyst, my answer is look at me, nervous talking. Can you imagine me listening <laughs> in peace for more than one minute to my <laughs> But seriously, this very interesting category of if I may use this Lacanian term, subject supposed to believe. Like, today we don't believe, but nonetheless, and my Austrian friend Robert Fahler, maybe he was here, developed a nice theory on it, how there are beliefs which exist objectively as a social fact without anyone believing in them. <laughs> and that, I think, if you ask me how ideology, ideology functions today. We are all cynics. Nobody believes in religion. All my friends, I ask the Jew, you respect uh, kosher food? Do you really believe in it? All are saying to me, no, I'm not crazy. It's just part of my cultural tradition and so on and so on. Christians, I asked usually friends to provoke them, okay, it's Santa Claus, whatever, uh, why not you give a present to your son? Uh, uh, and they say, of course I don't believe in it, my God, I buy the present. But I claim that when you ask the son or the daughter, do you really believe in Santa Claus? They will tell you, no, I just pretend to believe, not to disappoint my parents and so on. So, you see, nobody believes, but belief functions. As an, and I claim, I'm sorry if I repeat this story, I use it in a couple of my books, that the great scientist of the 20th century. I seriously suspect that he's maybe one step above Einstein, Niels Bohr. He provided, in one of his anecdotes, I read this in a biography of Bohr, he provided a perfect formula for this. I'm sorry if you know the story, I will be brief. The story is that once uh, his friend visited him at the country house near Copenhagen and saw horseshoe above the entrance door. You know that horseshoe is, 
I don't know how it is with you. You Swiss have your own raclette, whatever, strange. <laughs> <laughs> and you are for me a totally mysterious country. <laughs> you have all those tunnels where millions of people can hide and so on. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, uh, uh, so, again, uh, uh, this ritual, the idea is that a horseshoe prevents evil spirits or whatever to enter the house. So now comes the nice story. A scientist visited uh, Niels Bohr there and asked him, but you are a scientist, why do you have this there? Do you believe in it? Niels Bohr answers, oh, I'm not an idiot, I'm a scientist. of course I don't believe in it. Then the friend insists, but if you don't believe in it, why do you have it there? You know Niels Bohr's answer. I don't believe in it, but I have it there because I was told that it works also if you don't believe <laughs> Is this not ideology heute today? We don't believe in democracy, in justice and so on, but we act on it. And I'm ready to go even a step further here. And this is my old Yugoslav communist experience, because this was totally true for Yugoslavia. I'm not saying an ideology functions even if you, even if you don't believe in it. I'm ready to be more radical and to say the only way for it to function is by not believing in it. That if you take the ruling ideology too seriously, you become a dissident, you. And this is my personal experience. I had in mid-70s, when I was a young student, a good friend who worked at the Central Committee of Communist Party in Slovenia, in some ideological division. He lost his job. You know why? Because he sincerely believed in Yugoslav sense-management socialism, and the top nomenclatura bureaucrats got it correctly. This is dangerous. <laughs> I mean, if you look at like, and this is what, uh, this is where today we have ideology in our everyday life. First, we have all these beliefs which circulate around and you can prove it in a wonderful way how they can have real effects without anyone really believing in them. In ex-Yugoslavia we have this wonderful story which even if it's not true, it illustrates perfectly a certain logic that there is enough of toilet paper in the stores. But then a rumor starts to circulate that there is not enough toilet paper. People even know, all people, that this is just a rumor. But each of them reasons like this. I know there is enough toilet paper in the stores. But probably there are some idiots who don't believe it and they will start buying like crazy toilet paper so at the end there will really not be a toilet paper and so I so that I don't run out of it it's better for me also to run there and so you see the paradox nobody believes in it you just need another one who is supposed to believe and the effects are here and uh, so again uh, I think that today our era is not, as they say, the era of total cynicism, out of belief. Maybe we believe even at this level, maybe we even believe more than ever. Because, you know, it's such an enigma, belief. I advise you to read, it must be translated into German, you find it all the time in French, in English, 
Paul Venn, the French historian, wrote a wonderful book called, uh, in English, Did the Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Gods? And the result is wonderful. Of course they didn't. I mean, Greeks were not stupid. They didn't think if you climb the Mount of Olympus, you will find there, I don't know, Zeus uh, trying to seduce a Peter or what. But it wasn't also a simple fake. They, even if they didn't believe it, literally, and also not metaphorically, that's the wrong way, in a way they practiced their belief. And my example here would have been politeness. It's a wonderful thing. I more and more, maybe because I'm old, I'm starting to celebrate politeness, nice manners, and so on. And I'm proud to do it as a leftist, because you know, when I was young, and some of you who are also old, I think you're wrong, uh, I remember the 60s revolution, those in power were talking official language, with dignity and so on. And we, pseudo-revolutionaries, we like to talk dirty to uh, shock those in power, fuck you, and so on. Now, did you notice, after our beloved Donald Trump and similar phenomena, it's those in power, right-wingers, who talk dirty. And I totally agree that the left should become, and I'm very serious here, unfortunately, a defender of simple human dignity, politeness, and so on and so on. Because what fascinates me in politeness, two things. One is uh, how, it's, and without this you cannot understand everyday ideology, what I call sincere lying. Let me give you a stupid example. Let's say you, yeah, yeah, you stand up, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we meet on the street, we know each other, but now I will be evil, it's not true. Let's say we just pretend to be friends, I really don't want to see you, so when I see you, I, my inner thought is, oh my god, why didn't I see you five seconds earlier so that I could run to the other side? But when I see, I tell you, oh, nice to see you, how are you? I claim, in normal functioning, we both know that I am really lying. But it's not simply a hypocritical lie. Because although it's not true, literally, we give to each other signal that we are kind and so on and so on. Exactly. Yeah, and these are manners. Without this, let's call it sincere life, civilization falls apart. Absolutely. And the <laughs> I was the barbarian. In the United States, if you go to New York, you know that there, in cafeterias, waiters always ask you, how are you today, sir? Well, I was a total idiot, and I took it seriously. And I started to answer, oh, not too good, I just arrived, uh, I have a jet lag. And I noticed a moment of total panic. <laughs> Am I crazy or what? So, what I'm saying is that uh, here I am still some kind of, with all the doubt that you indicated, what can be Marxism today. I know, I know. Yeah. No, now we'll come back. Okay. I don't know what Marxism can be today, but I know what would, would, would happen to you when we Marxists took power. In Gulag, you will be, be writing long confessions. It will be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I can say it in Stalinist trial, people consent that. 
It's triumphantly to your con no, seriously. First what person. fascinates me? Now I'm not kidding. It's how you know uh, <coughs> I want in Marxist spirit but against much of what Marx do. You know what's the paradox of Marx? Today on one hand Marx's basic model, finance capital, circulating profit, is true. But precisely, maybe even more than in Marxist time. But at the same time, we see its limit. It's also totally false. In the sense that, you know, it's an old Hegelian paradox when he says that when a certain concept is fully realized, it's, it's decay at the same moment. So we have to radically rethink it. But let me go on. Uh, as a Marxist, I say, we have to reinvent a certain enfrentung, alienation, as a positive category. I think that there is a type of alienation, personal, political, which we should assert. For example, this minimal alienation in Sprachengang, in uh, communication, like hello, nice to see you, uh, admitted that if I say nice to see you, how are you? If you were to detect that I mean it seriously, you would have full right to say, wait a minute, it's none of your matter how I feel and so on. Yet, yeah, you would be. Yeah. Okay. Another question, okay? <laughs> This is another confession for Gulag in what sense. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go on seriously. What fascinates me is how this minimal alienation of language that you don't really mean it, as we say, it's just a form. But although it's literally a lie, I don't care how you feel and so on, it's a sincere lie. It establishes communication. And at all levels, we have to become aware of it. Uh, let me give you another element which is always my favorite of ideology, how it functions in everyday life. A phenomenon intrigues me for a long time. So-called, I've written, maybe some of you know it uh, abundantly about it, the ultimate mystery of communication, so-called empty gestures or offers which are meant to be rejected. You know, like, stupid example, I'm sorry. We sit in a restaurant, you invite me, like tonight, and I hope you will play this game with me, and then when the bill <laughs> arrives, you are rich, I am poor, we both know that you will pay. But I don't know how it is in your strange country, but in many other countries, we have to go through this ritual. I have to pretend for some time, no, no, let me pay, and then again. But you know, this is the beauty of communication. We both know that you will pay. I mean, if you are really evil, you can say, okay, if you want, you pay. But what I want to say is that you see the magic of communication. Uh, we both know it's an empty game, but it serves a purpose. That communication at its zero level. And there are many other rituals at, at, at this level. For example, do you know, uh, I don't know again how you have it in my country. Let's say me as my friend, we both compete for a job. 
my friend Wills. It's considered polite that he says to me, listen, I know you deserve it more. If you want, I step down, you get it. We both know that she will get it, but we have to go through that uh, ritual. And why does this fascinate me so much? Because that's for me the mystery of language. At everyday level, we don't just have the rules. We always have another meta-level, rules about how to treat the literal rules. On the one hand, we have rules of prohibition, which are meant to be transgressed. Many of prohibitions, especially sexual ones, if you really follow them, you are an idiot. You are not even expected to follow them. But much more interesting is the opposite paradox, where you are, it's not that something, you are prohibited something, but expected discreetly to do it. But then, you are solicited to do something, but it's expected that you don't do it. You know, like in these examples that I listed. And I think that our permissivity today, much of it, and already the high genius that I mentioned at the beginning, Stalin, it worked like that. You know what's the paradox of our modern era? That uh, it's not only that there are prohibitions, but prohibitions themselves are prohibited. It's not only that today, and here many feminists co complain in a correct way, it's not, even if women are formally not dominated, no, sorry, they are, but it's considered, it's somehow prohibited to publicly announce this domination. I always use this example, like, sorry if you say, let's say, it's my dream. We are in Moscow, 36, I'm Stalin. I think you applaud and so on. Okay. Then there is the debate in Central Committee. One of you stands up and criticizes me. Comrade Stalin was wrong and so on. Okay, we know what will happen. The big question next day will be who was the last one to see that guy alive? No, but, but then, ah, ah, ah. Let's say that another guy, let's call it for poetic purposes, Herr Myers, you know, stands up and starts to shout at that guy. Are you crazy? Don't you know that we don't talk about this uh, uh, like this on Stalin? We don't do this here, it's prohibited. Right. You would disappear even earlier. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. You see what I mean? It wasn't simply prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was even more prohibited to publicly announce this prohibition. You have to pretend that, of course, we can't do it just, ah, Stalin is such a genius, why to do it? And I think our permissivity often functions like that. Another story, sorry to uh, jump around, but I think it's a very important lesson. I always use it to illustrate the jump from traditional authority to today's permissive authority. Let's say it's Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you are a small boy or girl, and you, your father wants you to visit the old Sinai stupid grandmother. An old uh, authoritarian father will simply tell you, listen, I don't know how you feel, it's your duty to go to the grandmother and treat her kindly and uh, behave properly. That's not a problem, I claim. You feel oppressed, but you can resist and so on. But then comes the monster of the permissive 
both father or God, who will tell you something different. He will tell you something like, you are free to do whatever you want. I will not force you. But just remember how much your grandmother loved you. Now what's the message of this? Beneath the appearance of choice, the message is a much more oppressive one. The message is, I don't want you only to visit grandmother. I want you to visit it freely of your own choice. So you know, it's this old paradox. You are given a free choice on condition that you make the right choice. And I think, again, if you look at this texture of language, all these paradoxes, it's here that you find ideology today. And that's why what I write my comments, some of them were even published by Spiegel, I cannot understand why, <laughs> about immigrants. My God, I'm not against them. I just think that, of course, there are, let's call it cultural problems, because, you know, ideology today, it's not just the deep ideological philosophical and so on. Ideology is something which determines your daily life. Ideology is how men and women treat each other, how you treat friends, how you debate, how you eat, and so on. In my, I will not repeat it for the 50th time, in my stupid, too popular example, I'm sure most of you know it, I just make a simple look at the structure of main European toilets. You know, the old German toilets, they're disappearing now. Uh, it's the, like shit is out in the open there, so they have these perverse rituals that after finishing defecation, you inspect the sheets, smelling, and so on. That's German toilets. French toilets are like sheet, a hole is in the back, water, sheet drops directly into it. The Amer anglo saxon are different. The bowl is full of water, so shit floats <laughs> And I spoke with many architects, I mean, designers. And it's like I read books, American friends sent me two books about it. And they admitted the books that all direct functional explanations fail. And then the idea came to me. You know, around Hegel's time, there was this idea of European Trinity. Three big countries, Germany, France, England, each stands for a certain level of social life. England is economy, France is politics, Germany is poetry, and so on. Second thing, each of them for a certain political stance. Anglo-Saxon pragmatism, French revolution, Germany more passive. And then it came to me, but that's it. The French attitude revolutionary, cut off, shit must disappear quickly. The Anglo-Saxon are more pragmatic, let it flow there and so on. And Germans are, of course, metaphysics observation. Now, as crazy as this sounds, you know that something like that, maybe not quite this, has to true, because my point is not just to make fun here, my point is to make it palpable to you how the most vulgar activity, the most common phenomenon, go into the toilet, and you are deep in ideology there, because it's a whole attitude towards life 
you know that I'm not serious. I spoke with many animal, uh, this, what do you call it? They study animal behavior. And they told me that one of the few, they doubt even there, distinction that really work between humans and animals is that how to dispose of sheep becomes a problem for humans. You know, you cannot just do it, it must disappear. So again, this is one thing that fascinates me. So again, when I talk about immigrants and so on, I am uh, always shocked how both either uh, right-wing anti-populist who is number enemy and so on, but the same mistake is made by this open left, oh, they are good people, just bring them in, and so on, and so on. I often find this second attitude of openness. Of course, it's more sympathetic politically. We should bring them in, take care of them, and so on. But it's almost uh, more dangerous, I claim. You know why? Because, uh, first, I would say, uh, again, cultural differences are something that structures the texture of our innermost daily life. And it will not work the way they do it in Germany, you know. They distribute those brochures, two men kissing, yes, it's good, a man beating a woman, no, it's bad. Of course we should do this, but you don't solve the problem in this simple way. Why? What is the problem? Again, uh, my, uh, my my point is that, and that's the big sad news that I have, uh, that social violence, violence against women and so on, it's not simply some kind of brutal barbarism. It's clearly always a symbolic ritual behind it. And I'm here, I'm not only critical of Islam, but even of our civilizations and so on. For example, to begin with ourselves, isn't it absolutely clear that Catholic pedophilia is not simply, oh, there are many priests, whenever there are many men, there has to be some pedophiles, so no wonder they are there. It's absolutely clear that in some difficult to describe way, pedophilia is a, a kind of obscene other side of Catholic identity. It's absolutely clear from the way Catholic Church, at least till now, treats it, basically protecting the priest and so on and so on. And then my friends helped me to understand, you remember that Köln Carnival New Year's Eve. They told me, but all the debates, where did they really do it, not, blah, blah. But my friends, my Arab friends, I think many of them, they told me, but they don't get what happened. This is our most common ritual. For example, they, my Egyptian friends, told me that during Tahrir Square, you know, the big emphatic moment, oh, this happened every evening, all the time. It's their typical male chauvinist ritual. In the evening, men gather and not rape. Maybe there were rapes, but the typical ritual is they just squeeze, harass women a little bit. It's their most common ritual. And it was shocking how nobody, nobody got this point. That it's not some wilderness or whatever. It's a precise, well-established ritual. 
So that's the first thing to do. Whenever we are dealing with unacceptable behavior, brutality, and so on, the most, the saddest thing for me is that these are not wild explosions, we become like animals or whatever. No, they are always symbolic rituals. Even if they are, I don't know how horrible. In my book, this the Poet Classic Count, I give a, a terrifying example of, uh, of uh, Mexico. Uh, uh, where now in some cities where there are many new factories and uh, women working in them, uh, these uh, serial rapes become a standard phenomenon. It's extremely brutal. Like uh, around up to 50 men kidnap a young girl and they first serially rape her and then they cut her slowly with scissors. First they cut the breast. It's pretty rough. But you know what's so horrible to see them? This is not simple brutality. It's a brutality which is precisely ritualized with a certain social message, women will not tolerate free women, and so on and so on. So again, here I follow Jacques Lacan, who emphasized that what he calls tribe, brutal, uh, libidinal explosions, they are purely symbolic. They are not our animal side. They are the dark side of our immanent cultural life, and so on and so on. So again, my point is that uh, what I don't buy with all my sympathy, I'm helping them towards refugees, is that when you have a clash of cultures, sorry, not clash in the hunting sense, but clash in simple sense, they come in contact. This is always a very difficult moment when the only way to confront it, I see, is not as the liberal left is doing. We shouldn't talk about it because we give argument to the racists and so on, but let's confront it openly. Let's debate it. You do this, we do this, how to find a common way. Nonetheless, we should not, of course, make certain compromises there. We shouldn't victimize, uh, we shouldn't allow victimization of women, and so on and so on. So the first thing for me is to openly admit it as a problem, because I think there is a certain paradox that you can immediately notice here. First, our right-wing populists are totally hypocritical, in what sense? Usually in our countries, did you notice this irony? They attack all the time, for them, is the ultimate plot. Uh, gay rights, uh, transgenderism, uh, abortion, no? But all of a sudden, with immigrants, they discovered gay and women's rights, you know? <laughs> I mean, they are absurd. In the same way, there is a real problem. For example, I saw a report on German TV, a leftist report, of some writing propaganda. About this problem, how up to 2,000 girls every year escape from Muslim families and seek refuge because their family didn't tolerate that they wanted to have a German boyfriend, whatever, doesn't matter. But the problem is this one. Then the Muslim community says, listen, you speak about tolerance, but you are really not tolerating our way of life because the way we treat girls, the family authority, is a fundamental constituent of our way of life. I'm just saying we should admit this as a problem. And so I just see the hypocrisy of how the same people who 
here, if you look at a woman into her eyes for too long, you are already accused of visual rape or whatever. Here we are hypersensitive, but that, when it comes to another culture, oh, it's their specific culture and so on and so on. I think that we are here confronting two errors which are symmetric. On the one hand, yes, it's true, uh, there is a lot of European cultural imperialism, if you call it like this. By this I mean many of the values, norms that we impose on others as universal human rights are in reality culturally very specific. Uh, a person from Asia will easily demonstrate to you how, uh, demon sorry, demonstrate to you how, for example, our notion of human rights gives predominance to individual freedom and so on, while solidarity, uh, collective identity is much stronger in their culture and so on and so on. But you know, the, uh, so this, okay, so what? I think that uh, at the same time, the opposite story is also true, that quite often a reference to a specific way of life is used as an excuse to tolerate brutal exploitation and so on and so on. Like, you may know now that in exact correspondence to our celebration of gay rights and so on, for example, in many African and Asian countries, there's more and more a uh, homophobic atmosphere. They are legally prohibiting homosexuality and so on and so on. And the situation is here even more tragic than you think. Because not only this, now I come to the real tragedy, not only this, but they even experience, even sincerely, their homophobia and so on as their fight against colonialism. I had the misfortune in London of meeting a guy, it wasn't a pleasant meeting, who was an open sympathizer of Boko Haram, those nice guys in the north of nice story. He told me, listen, in our daily experience, the main social impact of Western global capitalism, cultural influence is women no longer obey us, they want to be left alone, blah, blah, blah. This is for us the most visible face of colonialism. So, consequently, Boko Haram, which means literally no education for women, whatever, is our way to fight capitalism. And, and uh, I don't see, that's the problem. There is no easy way out here. You cannot have it both. You cannot be simply tolerant towards other cultures. And so what would you do here? Would you say, okay, this is your culture. We respect women's rights. You do whatever you want or what. But how do you do it? The only solution I see is not to look for some universal culture, but it's struggle. They are fighting their own struggle for freedom, corruption, and so on. We have to find a common front at some level. It can be done, because if we don't do it, then uh, we are lost. But just another remark on, on ideology, ideology today. That notion that I used of this objective beliefs, beliefs which function without anyone believing in them. Here I see the actuality of Marx. I'm very critical of Marx, but 
his notion of commodity variant fetishism, commodity fetishism, I develop this in many of my books, is, I think, incredibly useful, especially today. Be careful what Marx says. Marx doesn't say, oh, we believe in fetishism, that commodities are fetish, but really they are just a social product and so on. Marx says something much more interesting. He says, of course, in our daily experience, we are like British empiricists. We say, what's, what's money? Nothing, just a piece of paper which gives you the right to part of the social product, nothing mysterious, but in our social practice, in our social reality, we treat money as a fetish and so on and so on. So the theory of Marx is that uh, it's a beautiful philosophical even paradox that it's not just that we have the way things appear to us and the way things really are. In between is something that we should call objective appearance. Things appear to us in a certain way. But this is not how things really appear to us. And then we are we have how things really are. So, you know when Marx says in Capital, sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es. It's not this common sense stupidity, people have illusory representations, but they don't know what they are doing. No, it's what they don't know is the illusions that they follow in what they are doing. This is why Marx repeatedly says that theoretical critique is not enough for to overcome fetishism. You may study uh, critical theory as much as you want, but in your daily practical life, you will still act as a fetishist. If you permit me another story, I'm repetitive, I know which I used, I would say, about 20 times in my books, but it's a perfect story. Uh, that joke, don't laugh, you know it. Uh, you know that stupid joke, a madman thinks that he is uh, corn, a grain of corn, and it's cured, now he knows he is human. So he is left out of the psychiatric hospital, but he comes running back, and the doctor asks him, listen, what's wrong? The guy says, oh, I saw a chicken, and I was afraid that the chicken will eat me. And the doctor tells him, but you know now that you are not a, a piece of corn. Says, I know, but the chicken doesn't know. <laughs> so that's how ideology works. We know, but we know that commodity is an ordinary object, but you know, the chicken doesn't know it, the commodity doesn't know it. By this I mean, we in our social practice act as if we don't know it. At this, now we come back to religion. We may know very well that God doesn't exist, but, how should I put it, God doesn't know it. <laughs> the chicken. In other words, even in superstitious practices and so, and so on, we still act as if God doesn't exist. And again, the truly difficult change is there. So uh, now uh, I succeeded in something totally crazy. I haven't even began. <laughs> we can say the most modern paradox that I will give a lecture which will be a lecture without the lecture, not the introduction. But uh, after this introduction, I will nonetheless like to make some important, let's hope, uh, some important 
point. I think that, okay, the first thing to mention, based on what I said, uh, based on what I said here, uh, let me begin with uh, Yes, the first point would have been uh, when I pleaded for alienation and so on and so on, and is especially concerns all this stuff about uh, uh, refugees, multiculturalism, and so on and so on. What does it mean uh, accepting alienation, not as something to be overcome, but as a condition of freedom? Look, if I think for a long time, which would have been the most stupid wisdom, and wisdoms are generally very stupid, that you can imagine, I would say, I would have chosen that deep insight which you often find in multiculturalists, you know. An enemy is just someone to whose story we were not ready to listen to, you know. Like, we fetishize someone into the enemy, but if you really listen to him, you see his side of the story and, aha. First brutal argument. Ah, so it's good to know Hitler was our enemy because, you know, we just didn't listen to him enough or whatever. No, the example of Hitler shows that, you know, unfortunately there are real enemies. And the more you listen to his story, the more you are terrified. But another point that I want to make here is that uh, uh, I don't believe in this idea, let's just understand each other, open ourselves to other. How can I understand you, you, the perverted Swiss, whatever? How can I understand you when I don't even understand myself? I think that we are all totally perplexed here, and uh, I think that true tolerance doesn't mean this pressure, I have to understand you. But it's precisely, and I quote here a philosopher who is a right-winger, but not stupid, Peter Sloterdijk, where he says, the way to fight intolerance is a logic of discretion. We, you know, true anti-racism is not just I try to understand you Swiss, you're stupid, uh, 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 whatever you want, uh, raclette, and so on. But he said, I accept that I don't understand it. I'm ready to accept the distance. True tolerance is not this violent appropriation, I want to understand you, and so on, and so on. Because what we call understanding in this case is usually just violent appropriation. What I want to prove to myself is that you are really like me. But you are not. And you know, here I am absolutely defending, let's call it, Judeo-Christian legacy, where the notion of neighbor, the next step, is not what people think. Even the one with whom I totally don't agree, Levinas, Emmanuel made a nice point about this, where he says, what in Judeo-Christian tradition means neighbor, the next step, is not the other who is like me. Oh, now I discover we like the same movies, we are the same. But it's precisely the other, you know, let's say you have a friend, you know him very well, you think you know everything, then all of a sudden this guy does something, maybe good, mostly evil, like keeps a small kid, says something vulgar, and then you ask yourself, my God, did I know this person at all? At that point he becomes a neighbor. This is the dimension of the neighbor. And, you know, that's why love your neighbor as yourself 
is something much more radical. It's not we are all brothers. It's no. Neighbors are real neighbors. And the true art is to love them. That's why I enforce true tolerance of refugees. Not this humanitarian, not humanitarian, humanitarian is good, but human emotion bullshit. They are really like us deeply. No, they are not like us. Now you love them. If not, then you are a racist. Because there is something so violent when I read in news how, oh, but some refugees, they are such nice persons, Syrians, they are so popular in our media, educated Syrian refugees, you know. They are always useless, but they are like us. Yeah, with the implication, what about the others, you know? There is a clear class dimension here. Uh, 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 Syrian educated refugees are the good refugees, you know, so that silently you can dismiss the others. The problem is we don't need to, in this pathetic sense, sympathize with refugees. We have to do something to really help them. We have to stop the war there. We have to, I don't know, we have to stop economically exploiting the third world. It's clear how we Europeans are responsible for it. You know, through, I don't know, like African countries where there are refugees come from. It's always some Western economic interest. Take the, take the case of Congo, my God. It's one of the wealthiest countries as to its minerals. And it's the worst hell on earth. Why? Because the way Congo is parceled, with, dominated by local warlords, all of them directly linked to foreign companies, and so on and so on. No ISIS without American occupation of Iraq and so on. And it's clear what is happening now in ISIS. I doubt more and more if ISIS even exists. I think ISIS is a kind of a phantom-like entity invented as a screen through which big powers are playing their games. Shias against Sunnis, Russians against Europe, Turks against Iran, and so on. I mean, the problem is not the poor ISIS. The problem is all the antagonisms which are focused in Islamic State. Frankly, if these foreign interventions and in interests were to disappear, ISIS would be over, would be over in a matter of weeks and so on and so on. So again, my main point is that uh, I think that, let me imagine a true non-racist tolerant way of living. It's not I want to understand you, blah, blah, blah. I would like to live in a big building, and I have here a Muslim family, a Jewish family, an African family, Latino-American family, whatever you want, and we politely ignore each other. And I know I'm enthusiastic when miracles happen. With some of them, there can be a wonderful contact, but it's, as a rule, exception, and it will stay like this. And I think that's that's the true, that's the true tolerance. And it's the same as with love. Love is not universal. Love is something extremely brutal. And that's why I love it, of course. Love, what do I mean by this? When somebody tells you, oh, I love you all, I always think, and if you're old enough, you must remember him, the great democratic German politician, Erich Milke, of course. You remember when he was attacked in then the national counter, what? He said in despair, aber ich liebe euch alle. That's the truth of it. Love is not this. Love is what? 
I'm alone, I have a pleasant life, maybe some one night stands, I drink, I meet friends. Then I walk along the street, I sleep down, a woman helps me to stand up, and of course, it's the love of my life, totally contingent encounter. And this is a catastrophe usually. Before my life was pleasant, evenings with friends. Now I'm totally obsessed, everything is focused on that. That's love. Love is a properly metaphysical event. Love means that I elevate some particular contingent object into the absolute. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I think that love, authentic love, is by definition personal and exclusive. It's not I love you all, it's I love Okay, I don't want to be a... <laughs> I love, okay, I love you, or whatever, you know, and I ignore all others. That's one thing I want to emphasize. Now, since I'm spending my time, I will nonetheless try to bring it to conclusion by making uh, some other uh, uh, interesting hygiene points. Why Eurocentrism here? Let me be clear. By Eurocentrism, I don't mean, my God, I'm a communist. I don't mean this stupidity of European values or whatever. I mean something much more precise. I claim that in spite of all the horrors that Europe did, and it did its own more than fair share of horrors, and it goes even now, I will tell you a beautiful example from these days on the news. And combined with another data years ago. Uh, you know now, after this tragic, of course, shooting in uh, Orlando, Florida, they are again asking, but it's horrible and so on, and it is horrible. Okay, imagine some Muslim leader saying, we are fighting Western decadence, and although we know this is not nice, what we did there, the price is worth paying. There has to be innocents who die. If some Muslim leader were to say this, admit it, we would have exploded. Barbarism and so on. Okay, but, ha ha. You know, I have a quote here, I don't want to bore you with it now. You know what, uh, a couple of years ago, Madeleine Albright, at that point, Secretary of State, Foreign Minister said, you can check it, go to YouTube, you find it everywhere. She was asked by a journalist this question. Uh, are you aware that according to the data in all this military operation Afghanistan, Iraq, around half a million children died? Was it worth the price? She answered, it's a tough question, but yes, it was worth the price. You see, that's we who are talking, we, Western civilization. So my reaction to her when she, Madeleine Albright, made a very dirty trick for Hillary Clinton. Supporting her in some electoral talk, she said, probably God made a special place in hell for women who don't vote for women. She meant for women who vote for Bernie Sanders, no? Well, I respectfully disagree for her. I think if God made a special place in hell, it was more for women and men who think half a million children <laughs> is an acceptable price and so on. So yes, we in Europe, we have our, our, how can I call it, our good portion of things. But nonetheless, I ask you simply a question. 
Let's criticize to the end. I'm ready to do it. The destructive side of European values, colonialism, horror, and so on and so on. First, the first thing that I find suspicious here is uh, a hidden arrogance, which is in it. You know this old theory of white man's birth. It's the duty of us white men to rule others. Now, with some politically correct leftists, you find the opposite version of white man's birth, which is whenever something horrible happens in the world, it must be our fault. It's the consequence of colonialism. Like I remember when there was the, the uh, Rwanda slaughter, oh, it must be, and so on. But are we aware? You know who gave me this idea? My Arab and black friends. They said, they told me, we experience this as extremely oppressive. You pretend to defend us, yeah, 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 we are guilty for all. But what you are really saying is that we are poor passive victims, that we are not agents at all. I claim we should treat also blacks, Arabs, and so on as agents. Arabs are are oppressed, they were screwed by exploitation, oil in many cases is a curse for them. But what they are doing are certain political projects. We should treat them with respect as responsible adults. You know where I got this lesson? A wonderful adventure. <laughs> I was in, I'm sorry if you know the story, I was in Missoula, Montana. They was born there, I went to check the house. And I met them, there some they call themselves today Native Americans, Indians. All my Indian friends prefer the term India. And they gave me a wonderful reason. They say, Native American, what's this? We are native nature, you are culture, or what? And they told me, I much prefer to be called Indian because in this case, at least, my name is a monument to the stupidity of you white people. <laughs> and they are so sensitive against this patronizing attitude. They start shooting if you tell them, you know, we Indians, if somebody tells them, you know, we white people, we just exploit nature technologically, while you Indian have a holistic attitude towards nature, like we ruin a nation, sorry, a mountain for gold. You do the same, but before you do it, you ask the mountain, the ghost of the mountain, for permission and so on. So, this is one of my most beloved short books. A Native American Indian uh, student wrote a text where he demonstrates that Indians killed more buffaloes and ruined more forests than white men. And he told me the lesson is precisely, please don't patronize us in this dirty way. His point is, allow us the dignity to be evil, that we can also be evil. And they are so, they are, they all the friends that I know there have this attitude. And the story that I always repeat, I love it, if you are here, ladies or girls, let's say you have two types of a boyfriend. One boyfriend, let's say, is an old male chauvinist. He tells you, listen, maybe in some communist future it will be different, but today you women have to do home, I mean, homework, you have to wash my socks, clean the house, blah, blah. If you have this type of a boyfriend, stay with him, you may re-educate him. But let's say you have a holistic boyfriend who tells you, you know, 
you women have a much more, women, you have a much more holistic attitude towards nature. We men are just mechanical, manipulating nature. You have a much more authentic relationship. Run away from him as far as, as, far as you can. This is the nastiest form of racism. This, uh, how should I put it, false authentication of the other. Why, what the fuck, why should the other be authentic? They are, okay, they, they are not authentic with pleasure. You know when I got the nicest experience of this? I was in New Zealand and I met there some local artists who first, before we got to know each other seriously, were bullshitting me with this, you know, again the same bullshit. Before we paint, we ask the spirit of the river to inspire us, all that. Then, when we become friends, they told me the truth. There is a plan of to occupy everybody's plan, to conquer the American market. So they had two agents, one in LA, one in New York, who told them, kept them in touch, what is the latest fashion? And okay, they still asked the mountain for permission, but you know, the answer of the mountain was always in the same tone as the message from America, you know, like, like uh, when they got the message that now, I, they told me that some weeks ago, under the influence of Russian, invasion of Russian artists, very popular to me, sacred topic, saint churches, whatever, rituals with sex, like religious rulings with some naked women at work. <laughs> the starting the mount. New Zealand was telling them to do this and so on, and I admire them. I think, you know, all the, I think when people, uh, uh, when people uh, pretend admiration for you know, like this total British colonialist bullshit, like we may be, all colonial British managers in India hundred years ago had the same story. The more they were brutal towards ordinary Indians, the more they wrote things like, God, we are so vulgar in the West, we care only for power technology. An ordinary poor Indian farmer has more spirituality than all of us. That's the worst of racism, I claim. Allow the other non-authenticity. Allow him to be happily alienated, whatever. Now I come to politics and then I finish with you. Uh, uh, that's why, uh, you know, uh, we now the percent is over. By this I mean the main models for the left are passé, which is why it's not enough just to complain, oh Caracas, Americans, uh, uh, special war against us. It's an imminent problem. Did you notice how uh, we have one thing which worries me very much? No. Even any protest. I was deeply shocked and I was there. I went there, okay, as a tourist, revolutionary tourist, you go to look at them. You remember, I think it's already 10 years ago or when, cars were burning in the suburbs of Paris. You remember, thousands of them. But you know what was so shocking? First, the authorities thought it's Islam. Then they learned, but the first thing they burned were their own uh, cultural centers and so on. It was a kind of a pure outburst of rage without any, not even clear positive project, but even without any message. It was just what in 
linguistics we call, okay, Roman Jakobson introduced the term fatic communication, you know, just hi, I'm here, just to establish the link. And we have more and more of that. On the, in, okay, even today, we are in an epoch of rage, which is open and dangerous one. Like, you know, rage gives us Bernie Sanders, but also Donald Trump, and so on. On the opposite end, with Syriza and so on, and I know, I speak from almost inner experience, my God, Varoufakis is my friend, I know Tsipras, and I consider this an authentic tragedy and at the same time, moment of truth. If there is a metaphor for the fate of today's left, it's, you remember, almost a year ago, on the first day, Syriza won referendum, no to austerity. One day later, they totally surrender. And I don't blame them. I don't think they had other way out. I totally distrust, I know that, those left platforms who said, no, we should have done Brexit, print our own money, and so on, and so on. It would not have worked. So my point is this one, uh, that not only is the 20th century over, in the sense that the standard old leftist, big 20th century model, Stalinist, state socialism and uh, Western social democratic welfare state, that they are disappearing. And with a very interesting twist, once I met Fukuyama, and he laughed so much, I told him, you know, in principle, you were right, with one exception. Okay, capitalism wins, but today, ex-communists, where they are still in power, China, Vietnam, seem to be the best managers of capitalism. No. So you should change your prediction, like, Capitalism with communists in power is the most efficient uh, capitalist system today. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that that's over. But a third dream, now I will provoke you, but not no dirty stories, decently, which I distrust, you know, leftists who are ready to concede this still stick to the dream of uh, direct non-representative democracy, like small transparent communities we, uh, where we decide our lives, we debate everything against political representation, state alienation, and so on, and so on. I, I think this is the last myth to be dropped. I'm totally opposed to this. It's wonderful when you have these authentic small communities, but I have two problems. First, in today's complex society, you know that for such a self-transparent community to function, a lot of things have to work in the background as an invisible machine. Like, okay, we freely distribute electricity, but eh, eh, the state has to produce electricity. The state, you need money, if you want. You need electricity, you need water, you need healthcare. You know, what I'm trying to say is that today the big challenge of the left is not, and I'm getting so tired of that, this big enthusiastic moments, oh, Tahrir Square, oh, Gaza Square, whatever, Syntagma in Greece, one million people there, we are all enthusiastic. I'm obsessed with the day after. The true test today is, and even Trotsky wants, wrote a wonderful point about this. The measure of the revolution is not, oh, we were all there, but 
What happens the day after, not literally, but when things return to normal? How do you feel the change at this level? This is why, I hope you saw the movie, which I don't like too much, although some stupid leftists like it, V for Vendetta. You know how the movie ends, that Guy Fawkes figure mask, at the end people win, they enter the parliament, people have won. The end of the film. I would send my mother into slavery to see a film with the title V for Vendetta Part 2. But what would they do then? How do they reorganize it? And so on and so on. We are in a, we are in a problem here. The problem is the problem of the left. Now you will tell me, and then there comes now, I'm close to the end, don't be too much in a minute. Now we come to the obvious question. But why, why am I bullshitting? If I see this fiasco of the left, why don't we simply, as they say in English, call it a day and say the game is over, forget about big changes, let's play the modest, welfare game as much as we can. And here comes my Marxist question. I see, I cannot go into it now in detail, of course, I see so many uh, antagonisms in today's society that I think in the long term the type of global capitalism that we have today, and even democracy the way we have today, will not be able to solve it. Democracy? Yeah, let me go at it directly. I was involved in some polemics in Germany, the Deutsche Zeitung, about migrants and so on, and a right-winger attacked me. Pretty simply, this is a common argument in Germany, but it's a strong argument. That you leftists pretend to be for democracy. But then you should criticize, you know the argument, Angela Merkel. She called one million people more to come to Germany. Where is her democratic legitimization? It's clear that if there were to be a referendum, majority would have been against it. So what do you do here? Frankly, I, I think she was right and one has to say it's through democracy. This ethically, this has to be done. But are you ready to do this? It was the same with when there were negotiations with uh, Greece. Varoufakis is too much in an illusion he thinks democratize Europe. But I had contact with some politicians who told me the problem was not secret negotiations in Brussels, but the opposite one. Like I spoke with a Slovene negotiator who told me whenever we had to make public statements, we had to be much more anti-Greece because people around Europe were against helping Greece mostly. Like, why should the lazy Greeks get the money and so on and so on. In other words, democracy is not a simple solution the way we have it. For democracy to work, authentically many other things have to change. Or to give you another example, I read recently a book of some Jewish-American sociologist, uh, 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 it will come to me, sorry, Yahari, uh, 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 something like this, who wrote a book, I got a copy in advance, uh, Homo Deus, where he says the problem with democracy is that it only works precisely in the far as democracy means confronting differences. This, it only works if there is already a certain shared field of practices, values, and so on, and so on. Democracy works if we agree on basic things and then we make choices, which is 
why, for example, when you have real problems, like Middle East, you cannot say, let's organize big elections. Already in Germany, you have a problem. Okay, let's decide the fate of migrants democratically. Who will vote? Probably some leftists will demand, and I tend to agree with them in some way, uh, that migrants who are there already, even if, if their status is not yet legalized, they should also vote. Then you can say, but why not go further? All those who are waiting to come to Europe uh, on, on the shores of Libya, Syria, should also vote, and so on and so on. You cannot do this. At a certain point, where the divergence is too much, you need negotiations. You need a totally different, uh, a totally different logic. So what I'm saying, again, is that uh, the problems today are not the problems of smallest, beautiful, local democracy and so on. I mean, uh, you in Switzerland, and I love you, you are the living proof. The result of your direct democracy is that I think you were the last place in Europe where women got to vote. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say is this. Let me, okay, let me put it in another provocative way. Would you really like to live in some shitty, authentic, democratic society where every afternoon you have these meetings, how you filter and how we distribute water or what? No, I would like to live in a society where I can dedicate my I more or less to do what I like to do, listen to classical music, read books, write books, and it's kind of in a kind of invisible background state mechanisms function, or other so mechanisms, whatever. But, you know, it, it is there. Healthcare is there, water is there, it, uh, uh, ecological, environmental control is there, and so on and so on. I would much, and I think this is the problem today. This is why, when a journalist recently asked me what kind of society would be your ideal type, my answer was instant, bureaucratic social. We need to rehabilitate it. Read Stalin closely. The problem of Stalinism was precisely that democracy was too politicized and never even functioned there. It's a totally wrong designation, Stalinism, bureaucratic socialism. The problem was precisely that bureaucracy didn't properly function. That's why things never worked. That's why they had to invest in paranoiac scenarios, traitors, and so on. So, uh, and also, at a different level, isn't it that all our problems that we have today, you cannot solve them at this micro level, ecology. I think this is the worst ideology today when they personalize responsibility. Like, don't just criticize. Did you recycle all Coca-Cola, the cans? Did you put all your paper? This is, for me, everyday ideology experience. On the one hand, it makes you feel easy and blurs the true questions. My God, the solution is not, uh, is not, uh, is not uh, uh, recycling the cans. The solution is to more basically change up the way our industry works and so on and so on. But the trick with this personal responsibility ecology is that 
it makes you personally responsible so that instead of criticizing society, you worry, oh my God, did you do enough? Did I do enough to save the mother earth and so on? At the same time, it's easy to satisfy. You can say, oh, all the camps are there, newspapers are there, so I can go on consuming, I did my duty and so on, you know. So what I'm saying is that what is needed today more and more are precisely large actions which are even transnational. My good friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, an excellent French theorist of catastrophes, you should maybe divide him here, he's a genius. He, right. he will, yeah. perfect. You have my, because of this, your penalty is lower to two years, no longer five years of gulag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, he really, he really is uh, a genius. He told me, just imagine this. He was in Fukushima as part of some European delegation, sorry, in Japan, two days after Fukushima. And he learned a terrible story there that for one day, a couple of hours less, the Japanese government seriously thought they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area. How? When to do it? Okay, the rational international solution would have been ask Putin, Putin, Russia to give them part of Eastern Siberia. But they cannot do it without war and so on. So, you know what? I mean, migrant, migrants are not just migrants here in Europe. We will be more and more confronting large-scale catastrophes, desert growing, global warming, and so on. And we desperately need, even he is now becoming half-communist, I'm just reading his last book, Was Gescheint, Was in Jahrhundert of Slotterdijk, where he also emphasizes it becomes a matter of survival, transnational regulations, actions, and incidentally, this is the only way in which I am a communist. No Leninist party, don't be afraid, and so on. Or, actually, uh, uh, no Leninist parties after just we get rid of the traitors like that. No, no, what I have to say seriously is that that's the big question today in ecology. We don't need recycling, we need mega action. We are confronting incredible threats. Biogenetics is the same. Are we aware what is already happening? Then, in economy, not only finances, but intellectual property is the death toll of, 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 uh, uh, of, of, of capitalism, I claim. Isn't it clear how more and more information, data, movies, like, I don't know when I was the last time in cinema, a couple of years ago. Now, when you mention cinema to me, you know, if you give me a primitive test, my association is kick-ass pirate bay, you know, where I get on the... So what I'm saying is that I don't think that the market will be able, the capitalist market, to integrate so-called intellectual property. Then there is the paradox of migration. And so here, again, I, as a leftist, follow uh, Sloterdijk, who in his book on global capitalism <laughs> used a wonderful metaphor. He said, global is not just all-encompassing. Global is also the globe, like cupola. Some are in, others are out. 20% of us are in, others are out. And the problem of migrants is precisely that those out want in. If we leave this process to be played in a chaotic way, we are finished. So again, how to do this? Here, I think, 
European legacy matters. Why? Because a slaughter like my God puts it. <laughs> we will have to make this crucial step of freeing ourselves from our particular ethnic, religious, whatever identity. We have to do in our daily life what already Descartes did. You know, the most beautiful part of Descartes for me, is, I think it's at the beginning of Discours de la Méthode, where he says, when I was young, when I met foreign people, they appeared to me stupid, idiotic. But then I thought and I came to the idea, but what if we also appear in the same way idiotic to them? This insight about the contingency of our own identity. I'm not saying you should abandon it. I'm just saying what? That the Cartesian subject is precisely this empty, uprooted subject. And there, are, there is no feminism, there are no human rights and so on without it. I will give you an example. Do you also have these debates now here, uh, this uh, crazy American debates, transsexual toilets, should they be divided or not? I have some doubts about that. But basically they are right, transgenderists, that our even sexual identity is not a direct set grounded in biology, it's social construct up to a point, what does this mean? This means that we are Cartesian subject. You know, the Cartesian subject is not a substance. It is a void, an empty, I think. And all this, this idea of a rootless contingency of our identity. And my ultra example here, with this I will conclude and I can maybe hopefully shock you, is Malcolm X. Okay, if you saw the film, then cell washing the film. You know what was the genius of Malcolm X? You know, the black leader was shot by Marjorie. What does it mean, Malcolm X? You know what, no? It means, X means we were deprived of our groups. Through slavery, we were torn out of our particular cultural identity. But here, Malcolm X got a stroke of a genius, how to prove it. He came to this brilliant Hegelian insight. But what if this is not just a catastrophe? His message was, let's forget about that stupid stuff, let's go back and uh, search for our roots. We can leave this to Hollywood kids bestseller, you know, the TV series, Roots, Alex Haley, and so on. His insight was that this X, which means brutal uprooting, is at the same time a unique open opportunity to start from zero to build a new identity. In other words, Malcolm X is a Cartesian cogito in politics. And this is, now I'm coming back to Eurocentrism. Why sorry? I'm not Eurocentric. I'm Eurocentric precisely because I think the very core of European identity is to accept this abstract X. Women's rights are based on it. We have old-fashioned women's rights, which I think are very dangerous, which are these substantial women's rights, you know, like, oh, there is male nature, aggressive, but there is woman's nature, more dialogic, and so on, and we need to supplement male principle with woman's principle. I think this is a catastrophe, and my good friend Judith Butler knows it. She's done, she's like Gables, 
in a good sense. What I'm saying is that feminism, human rights, human rights are precisely the rights of such an empty, empty individuals. That's the great Western notion that we, stupid single individuals, we participate at universality with no mediation in particularity. That's for me the big lesson of Christianity, for example. What is Holy Spirit? It's when Christ says, you know, if you don't hate your mother, your father, you're not my follower. What does he mean here? Not the stupidity that you really have to... I claim that father, mother stand for the hierarchic social family network. The crazy wager of Holy Spirit, what Christians call Holy Spirit, is an egalitarian, non-hierarchic community is possible. It's not just as in Buddhism there. In Nirvana, we are not the same. No, no, we can do it here. And I think authentic democracy is precisely this. The moment of vote is like a Nirvana moment of our societies. You know, you are just an abstract number when you vote. That's one of the greatest achievements, I think. So, what I'm saying is that today, critique of Eurocentrism makes me suspicious. Why? Because I think that capitalism today, globally, is moving in a dangerous direction. Let's face it, capitalism did usually give birth to a demand for democracy. No, right. You had 20 years. 20 years was the usual age of uh, dictatorship. Chile, South Korea, and so on. But then when the things start to function, you don't want democracy. I doubt if this still is going on. Like, many of my friends are waiting for the new Tiananmen in China. I doubt it. I claim that a new type of capitalism is emerging, which functions much better with so-called Asian values, which have nothing to do with Asian values, but simply with authoritarian political structure. Look at Turkey, Erdogan. Look at India, Modi. These are beautiful paradoxes. In economy, total neoliberals. In politics, harsh religious or whatever nationalists. China, Confucian, and so on. And I think that the reason that critique of Eurocentrism is so popular has nothing to do with Europe, but is simply an... In, that's why you are not subversive if you... Didn't you notice this? If you criticize Eurocent Eurocentrism today, ooh, it's met with pleasure in most of the world. It's for me, a subtle legitimization of new non-democratic capitalism. And that's why I claim that uh, we should, that uh, again, European legacy is of course divided, there are corrupts in it and so on. But there is a certain unique idea is of, of uh, contingency of our roots, abstract universality, direct access of individuals to universality. It's not this corporate structure where, you know, this is the organic pre-modern structure, where you as an individual participate in universal society only through your particular role, like as a member of a, of a, of a, of a certain social group, as a mother, whatever. No, the modern European idea is you are immediately universal. And that's something unique, 
in what sense unique? Unique in the sense that it also implies ultimately the self-aushebung of Europe. The most triumphant truth for me, and with this I do conclude, if you ask me, believe me. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, look, French Revolution, all those human rights, blah, blah, forms. It's so simple to say, I know the Marxist criticism. They were false. They were, in a hidden way, twisted so that human rights really privilege white men of property and so on. I totally agree. But precisely of their universal form, things started to move immediately. First, men Wollstonecraft, women, we also want. Then, the biggest event of the last 200 years, maybe, for me, Shahidi slave revolution. They won. Slaves, black slaves said, we also. That's the magic of Haiti, you know, to some overture revolution. This was the first black slave rebellion where they didn't want to go back to some tribal blah blah, talking with mountains and all that. <laughs> no, they said we wanted to be the same as French, democratic republic and so on and so on. And then horrors happened but mostly because of how they were treated by ex-colonial powers, it was the nightmare and so on. But, and then, all the workers' movement is based on this, like, if there is fraternity equality, why also not in economic... You see, this is a nice example of how something can begin as a limited, twisted, ideological notion, but it can be reappropriated, it can be universalized. For me, the proper dialectical movement is not. You begin with an authentic moment which then gets degenerated, but you begin with a lie, with something that was obviously ideology, and then you can turn it around. If you know history of Mexico, you know Mary Virgin of Guadalupe, the black man, whatever. This, till that moment, Christianity was colonial. At that moment, for the first time, the exploited Mexicans tried to reappropriate Christianity as a way to express their own demands. So again, I think that precisely for the welfare of all the people, equality around the world, you have to go through, here I remain a Marxist, to this nihilistic moment of capital. Marx always emphasized it. Yes, capital, horror, blah, blah. But the only path to universal freedom goes through this capitalist dissolution of particular needs. Which is why I totally disagree with those who think that capitalism is global and to resist it we need local traditions. No, local traditions fit perfectly global capital. Capital is ultra-multiculturalist. We need universal modernity more than ever, which is why, incidentally, I disagree with those who think in Europe, now I give a hint to finish to Brexit, no? How? <laughs> there is a fashionable in the left now to say, since capitalism is global, we can fight it through stronger nation state. Like, why Marine Le Pen should be led to exploit nationalism? Let us counter it with leftist nationalism. I think this is a catastrophe. I think to propose a formula that I used in an article for Guardian, I think that socialist nationalism is not a way to fight the threat of national socialism. It's more important than ever today, in the era where capitalism is global, where threats are global and so on, 
to cling to the European legacy of universality. I was a little bit longer, but <laughs> what could you have done? You have to suffer it. Thank you very much. <laughs>
my role is my, my question is what you how you see your role as versus enthusiasm meditation going into and the other fields of life. Okay, I see your point. Yeah. No, first, I must, first, I must tell you that you know, like, I'm not just doing jokes like this. The last big book that I wrote is Venigaral Snitz on Hegel, which is over 1,000 pages. No. Yeah, and I mean, my heart is there. The reason I'm doing all this stuff is a very simple one. It's so primitive and naive. I am really worried about, as a citizen, about what is going on today. I think the situation is extremely dangerous. I think maybe we are even approaching a new world war. I think the situation is not so much as some people say with all this neo-fascist, is it fascism, it's more complex, uh, uh, rise of anti-immigrant racism. Some people say, oh, we are in the late terms again. Maybe, one of the is, maybe we are in the decade before First World War. Well, they were all preparing for war, but it was this terrifying psychological mechanism, for it we have a name in psychoanalysis, fetishistische Verleugnung, disavowal. No, the French forum race, we know that there can be war. We all the time talk about it. Look at the media. Russia intercepts an American fighter. NATO sends troops to... But why are we so relaxed? Because it's again We know it, but we don't really believe it that we can have it. This mechanism is basic today. It's the same with ecology. All the stories, global warming, but then, you know, you go out, my God, it's beautiful sun. Okay, not the last, it's too much. It's beautiful sun and so on. Can all this disappear? It cannot. And that's what worries me. We have a typical pre-World War situation. The role of uh, Bosnia, Serbia, where it exploded, is played obviously by the Middle East. Germany at that point is Russia today. Okay, it's more complex with China. And again, we are all preparing for war, but somehow we don't really believe that it will happen, which is why it can seriously happen. And I hear, so again, uh, sorry, I'm thinking, my point is I don't have here easy answers. That would be my definition of what I sometimes try to be philosopher as the public person. I have to confuse people to, if anything, to change the way we raise questions. Because ideology today is not to ask wrong questions, but to confront the right problems in the wrong way. For example, ecology. It's a serious problem. But the way we approach it, for example, either in this technocratic way, don't worry, science will find new answers, or in this new age way, even worse, you know, we are sinners, Mother Earth, uh, we should reestablish balance. What Mother Earth? Mother Earth is the greatest bitch there ever was. <laughs> Just think about oil. Can you imagine what tremendous ecological catastrophes had to happen on our Earth so that we have oil reserves and so on? So, or another problem, racism. It's typical how when we deal with racism and so on, we automatically translate it either in the problem of tolerance or 
in the problem of harassment. I think, for example, harassment is a term that I don't want to use. No, there is serious harassment. Women are harassed and so on. But quite often, when people talk about harassment, it's really a form, a form of intolerance. It means, don't come too close to me. It means, remain at the proper distance. So, what I'm saying is that, you see, this is the duty of Othello. I don't know what we should do. I know that we should stop dreaming in 20th century categories of state socialism, welfare state, and so on. I don't know how to fight racism. I do know that all this focus on tolerance is totally wrong. Look at the really big figures like Martin Luther King. He never mentions tolerance. For him, it would have been an obscenity to put black struggle in the terms of what white people should tolerate us more or whatever. So it's as simple as that. I have to bring people in so far as it's possible just to, you know, to shift their perspective, to see the problem in a new way. That's modestly what I can do. That's uh, absolutely important to do. And uh, you mentioned <laughs> the late 19th century and itself some sort of uh, sleepwalker behavior as Christopher Plummer also had. Yeah. He was here too, by the way. And uh, we're still learning from you and from him, and maybe we'll be better prepared in the future, the young gentleman has a question. Yeah. What I perceive is that there is another ideology that you mentioned at the end of your last book, coming a new paradigm, which is the technological... Sorry, which book? This, against the double blackmail, or the Noia Classic Camp? This one, the lady will show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's, there you mentioned biopolitics and everything it includes, but my question will go in the direction of how do you perceive this new paradigm which in the end goes into a totally new society, big data, internet of things society, which could culminate into trans and post-humanistic uh, dystopian or utopian visions, let's assume Silicon Valley as a sort of concentration ah. of this kind of logos. So if this is true and it operates with new perfidious and subtle methods of ideology, in which we basically willingly fall into by using these technological gadgets without realizing it. So it's beginning to like a, a more sublime or sublimated uh, level of perverted ideology and therefore psychopolitics, as Jung Chulman names it. So my question would be, in regard to what you said at the beginning, by changing the perspective, how can we really confront that? Because I consider it to be even a more severe problem than just the classical capitalism and the critic it uh, necessarily requires. I tend to agree with you, and I'm now working on it, reading books on it, but uh, my first elementary observation is how those who preach this, you know, whatever you call it, like Ray Kurzweil, singularity, new post-human, transhuman stage, that ontologically they cheat at a certain level, because they describe some transhuman state, but from the way they argue, it's as if somehow we will still be individuals the way we are. In the, they, they don't describe it radically enough. It's, uh, I think that what Ray Kurzweil, for example, is describing, it's utopia in the worst sense of the term. Now be careful here. I'm not a cultural pessimist. 
I'm not carrying the opposite opinion that, oh my God, it's the end of humanity, and so on and so on. I see it as an open, undecided situation, and uh, you know, here, it's not only what you mentioned, there are so many questions to raise here. Very specific questions, but fatal questions. For example, there is a common opinion sharing that uh, freedom of the will is an illusion, today's cognitive science can prove it. And I, I doubt it. Because the big proof that is usually quoted is, maybe you know, Benjamin Libet, that California scientist who, for the first time, already 30 years ago, yeah. made an experiment which is now considered as the first proof that there is no free will. You know, he wires you and then you have to do a totally contingent act like this. And he can prove that a split of a second before you decide, your neurons already know it. In other words, this is a kind of a proof that when you think you are making even the most contingent free decision, you are really just registering something that already goes on in your body. Hey, 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 there is a problem here. Libet himself, I heard you once talking in Chakrasisto, uh, doesn't read the result of his experiment in this way. He has a wonderful Judeo-Hegelian counterpoint. He said that we are looking for freedom at the wrong place, that freedom at the most radical level is not the positive decision, I will do this, but that in that split of a second, when you decide, you can sabotage it, you can say no. So that the act of freedom is zero, and that is authentic freedom. Even Daniel Dennett has a very intelligent counter-argument. He says that this idea that the Libet experiment demonstrates freedom, means, presupposes this Cartesian theater, that there is one center where you decide or not, and then things are already decided before, but what if you reject this central? So, you see what I mean? What I don't agree with, I wonder if you would agree, is although I appreciate him for his great public activities, intellectual, is a Habermas solution, which is basically for me a conservative Catholic one. No wonder that he co-wrote a book, not really co-wrote, they put text together with Paparazzo, Papa Ratzinger, with uh, that Pope, you know. Because they, basically, the idea is this one. If we go to the end in this self-objectivization, scientific, we threaten the basic notions of responsibility and human freedom, so we should not do it. This is for me, this typical conservative uh, Catholic view, some things are better not to be known. If we know too much, it may destroy us. No, I think it doesn't work if for no other things, for the brutal, pragmatic reasons. Whatever we decide in our decadent Europe, the Chinese are already doing it like crazy. And how? And how, and even in our, you know what is even more horrible than this simple Eastern freedom of not? I have my KGB spies, friends, in many of these laboratories. Yeah, no, this is not you, yeah. And then they told me that it's a wonderful, brutal experiment. They already are able to connect the neurons of a rat, rather the beautiful animal, with a computer so that I was 
sent a, 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 a video shot. It's wonderful. A rat is running around. You click a button, a rat is connected, and then a living rat becomes remote controlled car. You can direct it. Now comes the true enigma. They don't want it to go into public. They are discreetly already testing it. The true enigma is this one. Of course, you can do the same. It's a little bit more complex, but you can on a human being. The enigma is this one. If I do this to you, or you to me, uh, how would I experience it? Would it be like, oh my God, I'm no longer free, some foreign power controls me. I got things that is much more tragic is that you think you are still free. You are controlled, but you don't know it, and so on. So this is, for me, the greatest threat. This idea of direct connection of your brain to external machinery. It already works. The last thing I heard about Stephen Hawking, haha, I know people who know people who know in Cambridge, is that he no longer needs that stupid finger. It's already, you know, yeah. he's wired, sorry? Yeah, yeah. He's wired so that he just thinks strongly forward, his wheelchair moves forward and so on and so on. But you know, this is a terrible thing because, okay, we are godlike. We can do things with our thoughts. But you know what goes in, what goes out goes in. If we can influence this way the outside world, they can also do it. And these are for me tremendously interesting problems, the level of control. Like already now, I read a wonderful study by some Israeli sociologists who demonstrated that with a good computer program, it would have been much better to leave to the, your computer the decision how to vote. It can be proven that your experience when you live in a corrupted government, your memory is conscious memory. We all the time construct stories which are extremely uh, twisted, biased, false. So, so many things you forget, usually the worst experiences, but if you put into a computer your political preferences, and if a computer can measure not only what happened to you, but all the pain that you felt and so on, then the computer will propose a vote which will much more, in a much more accurate way, represent your interest than your stupid decision. What to do here and so on. I think that the true problem is double here. Not only does it work so simply, I think it doesn't. Because I think that we impute too much to computers in the sense as if they are divine-like consistent entities. You know, computers come with glitches, with mistake, and the glitch of a computer is our freedom, the minimal. But second thing, you know, computers are not neutral. They are twisted. My friend, haha, again I post it, uh, Julian Assange told me he wrote a book on uh, he wrote a book on Google and he claims it's terrifying. Google is private NSA. Not only do they directly corroborate with NSA, but you know they are already doing it. Like uh, for example, it's not Google, I know Amazon, but when you have Kindle, do you know that not only they know what you bought. 
but they get all the data, which book do you read, how long, what page, and so on. In a way, they know you already better than you know yourself. So the, lo so the problem is not uh, democracy. The problem is, will democracy become meaningless or whatever? But the true problem is somewhere else. They demonstrate that. At least in the next decades, it's not all computers will take over. It's that. And we are already doing it medically and so on. There will be a new distinction much stronger than the classic class distinction. A distinction between those who are in, controlling, and so on. For example, already now, uh, there is among the rich people a fashion, you know, a Chinese who don't get these old stupid ethical problems, what can you do? I was there, I was shown one. In the suburb of Shanghai, there are around 20 clinics, biogenetic, and they do everything. A rich Western person comes there, they analyze your, 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 your genetic structure, they propose changes and so on. They are already doing it to earn Western money. But the problem is this one, that it's more and more that the privileged class will literally, this is a quite serious prospect, will become a race on top. Except it's a new class system. That's a new class system. Yes. So again, <laughs> I hear the situation is over. I remain a Maoist. I know, but by a a Maoist, you will write about this. The young man already slandered the great president. Yeah. Okay. No. Sorry. I have to say, but you know which saying by Mao I like. That there is disorder under heaven. The situation is excellent. You know. In other words, we live in these open times where there are tremendous dangers, but my God, there are also chances. Very good. Uh, <laughs> is already doing research on a technique of magnetic waves, which will read your thoughts, maybe in yeah. 10 years or so. Already now they can read them safely, <laughs> but our precise thought is a little bit more different, yeah. uh, different, uh, and more difficult. You know what you also probably know? <laughs> I told you some people working labs for American army, they told me, forget about nuclear arms, all that bullshit, that's what all the armies are doing today. Much more like stuff. one idea is this, <laughs> you have a box like this, precisely a place like this room. I press a button, some, uh, some uh, what do you call it, wave radiation, you all lose will to fight, lose your memory for half an hour and so on. That's the future. It's already here. It's happening. All the armies are obsessed by this. Chinese at least say it openly. I met once the boss of Chinese Academy of Sciences, the division for biogenetics. He has shown me the program in English. You know how it begins. The task of biogenetics in People's Republic of China is to regulate uh, physical, bodily, and psychic welfare of the Chinese people. Haha, <laughs> they are doing it. <laughs> okay, now, please, one second. And you are a terrorist. You want to yeah, people spontaneous outbursts. Till you came, they didn't know, but now it's uh, everybody knows it. Yeah, it's true. No, uh, what I want to say is uh, we from the ACT is very totally flattered to have so many intelligent and beautiful young people here. 
normally you don't come in this... Uh, Are you implying that I'm not young and not intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> we can't discuss that over dinner. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, we would be really grateful if you came a little bit more because, I mean, he's a genius, no question about that, he's a superstar. My question is... You have the right question, but it's true, but we also have other speakers, and now just a, a quick preview of what we are doing in the autumn. Can, can you show that? Yeah. The Focus Asia, this is the main topic, it fits totally to what we, we talked about China. We have Ur Shirtley, you know him, he's also very strong tempered and so. Then we have Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister. Get him to come here. Yeah, Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, yeah. is a very good guy. He's a very good guy, no question about that. Then an old friend, Philip Hildebrandt, gives his first public lecture here again, after a certain amount of time. This is not finished yet, the program. We have other speakers trying to persuade to come here. Naomi Klein and Hillary Clinton are also on the list, but it's a little bit more complicated in these cases. Both of the seats <laughs> are slightly higher. But nonetheless, if you have some homegrown terrorists, yeah. I'm against terror. But I wouldn't protest too much if you organize some slight accident for Hillary. Like. Okay. <laughs> 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 this is this is our award. You can compete. You can give in your PhD uh, dissertation, and you get ten thousand francs. You saw that before. Another one. This is a short preview on the Dada. Everybody talks about Dada this year. It's a little bit. Um, you know, there is a Leninist theory of Dada. Lenin lived around the corner, and you know, in Russian, Dada means yes, yes. The idea is that Lenin was witnessing a performance band and said, da da! And that's the origin of it. That's the best explanation of da da I ever heard, and it didn't make sense. So, now a little present for you. We thought, well, it should be also a little bit different from the normal things, and we found something uh, which is really intelligent. It's a chin, and it's a chin from Zurich, and it's called Turikum. And it fits perfectly in the picture of the city of Zurich, and it's also very healthy, of course, in small doses, uh, or if you have a cold, you can rub it on your chest, but it's extremely good. Uh, Zurich, Slava, thank you very much again. It's absolutely... I thank you, but another obscenity. What you put, my good friend, you made you know him, Peter Weiber, that guy was. He told me of another, he told me, so that you know, I'm sorry, I have to be of him for the end. If you have a heart attack, get a woman to masturbate you and uh, massage here your sperm. He claims this saved his life three times. Oh, <laughs> oh,